Amen. You guys can be seated this morning. If you want to open up your Bibles with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, we'll be looking at verse 12 this morning. So you might be thinking, you know, it's Resurrection Sunday, it's Easter Sunday. Are we going to go to the, you know, one of the resurrection accounts? Are we going to go to maybe one of the New Testament epistles by Paul or, and talk about the importance of the resurrection? But I think it's very providential that as we've been going through John's gospel, maybe I'm looking into providence a little bit here, but as we've been going through John's gospel, the very verse that we come to this morning, I think has direct connections to what Christ did in his glorious resurrection. That as we've gone through John's gospel, we've seen Jesus proclaim himself as the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament pointed to. In chapter 7, we looked at Jesus as the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles, this great festival that Jesus stands up and proclaims, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me, and out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. That Christ is proclaiming himself as the fulfillment of this feast, the giver of the Spirit, the source of living water for God's people. And in today's passage, we're going to look at Jesus proclaiming who he is. He says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. And these are one of the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. And we've looked at one of them before in John chapter 6. Seven I am statements. And Jesus proclaims these things about himself. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. And while there's much to glean maybe on the surface of these words, right? Jesus being light, illumination, Jesus being bread, the one that can satisfy. While there's much on the surface, these statements of our Lord are rooted and grounded in the Old Testament. They're rooted and grounded in the Old Testament. We saw this in John chapter 6. Jesus is come and saying, I am the bread of life. That has a surface level meaning, but what he's really saying there is, I'm the true manna that's come down from heaven. The manna that was in the wilderness, the people ate it and they still died. But if anyone believes in me, they will neither hunger nor thirst. And so we see the same thing in our passage today. When Jesus proclaims himself to be the light of the world, he is talking about Old Testament language and imagery as the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament pointed to and looked towards. And so as we look at our passage this morning in John chapter 8, not only are Jesus' words filled with Old Testament language and imagery, but they are directly connected to what he will do in his work of resurrection and what God is doing now in the work of salvation. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning, that these words of our Lord are nothing short of the very gospel of God, the very point of Easter itself, the very point of the resurrection is all baked into the words that our Lord says this morning. And so as we look this Sunday, as we do every Sunday at the resurrection of Christ, we're going to see that he alone is the one that brings light and salvation to a blind and darkened world, and that all of scripture find its fulfillment in Christ himself. So I'm going to read our passage this morning, I'll pray for us, and then we will look at God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light 
of the world. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your holy, infallible word. We thank you that you have given us your revelation, that we might know you, the the God of the universe, the creator and sustainer of all things, the one who spoke and it came to be. And yet you have also given us your revelation of how we may be saved. And this morning, as we look at these glorious words of our Savior, words that we hold very dear, that Christ is indeed the light of the world, we pray that these words would pierce our very souls, that they would illumine our hearts, and that they would help us to see our great need for Christ this morning in the true glory of the gospel, of the resurrection, and of all that you have done for us. We know that you will do this. We pray that you will, and we ask for your help this morning. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. When we come to a passage like this, there's a fear of familiarity. There's a fear of familiarity, and there's a saying that goes, familiarity can breed disinterest or contempt. It can breed these things, and we see it in our own lives, right? The more we're familiar with someone, the more we let things go, the more that we just look over things. You know, I I don't have any great examples off the top of my head, but when we're familiar with things, it can cause us to be disinterested in those things. It can cause us to be blind or even just unaware of the depths of what's really going on. And this morning, this very well-known passage and statement of our Lord The fear is that this familiarity will lead to the same thing in our own hearts. And so as we come to this passage, it's important that we come with fresh eyes, with new eyes, to see the depths and the riches of what God has for us in his word. And while we read this morning about the importance of the resurrection in the catechism class, we talked about all the things, all the benefits that we have because of the resurrection, God did not reveal himself in a textbook. He didn't reveal himself in just a line-by-line sort of propositional way. He revealed himself in the story of redemption. (laughs) From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, God gives us the plan of his salvation, the plan, the unfolding plan of redemption revealed in the scriptures. And so all of scripture, because it is God's word to us, both Old and New Testament, reveals the glory of God, his plan of redemption for his people through the work of Christ. And so as we come to a passage like this, and when you see where we can go with a passage like this, it's important to remember that, that this is not just a mundane statement. I like what one pastor said, we need to use our theology, our knowledge of scripture to cut through the familiar, to cut through the mundane, the seemingly mundane, and see the glory of the gospel and the glory of Christ in passages like this. So what do we find in our text this morning? What do we find in these words of our Lord? Jesus proclaims himself to be the light of the world. As I mentioned in John chapter 6, Jesus said a very similar statement. One of these I am statements of our Lord. He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. He proclaims himself as the one that can truly satisfy the one that can truly satisfy, not just temporary physical satisfaction that we get from eating food, 
or drinking water, but true, lasting satisfaction, true bread from heaven as the one that has come down in the flesh. And whoever believes in him, whoever comes to him, will neither, neither hunger nor thirst. And so when Jesus says this, these words in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world, we see a very similar thing. That when Jesus proclaims himself to be the light of the world, he's not only claiming to be the source of a divine revelation, not only the, the radiant brilliance that expels the darkness, he is claiming to be God. He is claiming to be divinity. He is claiming to be God himself. What does it say in 1 John 1? God is light. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. That God is light. God is light, and in him there is no darkness. This is why the Nicene Creed will go on to say that Christ himself, the Son of God, is God of God, light of light. So Jesus is proclaiming himself to be God, but he's also proclaiming himself to be the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, the one that would bring light to his people, not only to the Jews, but to the entire world. That's why Jesus says, I am the light of the world, the light to the nations. And so this is all great. This is all glorious. This is all amazing, right? But it comes in the context of, and then with the backdrop of darkness. Because what does Jesus say? What does his words after this imply? It is contrasted with those that walk in darkness. Those that walk in chaos, against God, in judgment, in condemnation. That this proclamation of Jesus being the light of the world is a proclamation in a dark place. And so we must understand this before we can go any further. And I, and I really think in order to understand the depths of what Jesus is saying here, we need to go all the way back to the Old Testament. We have to understand how the people of this day would have heard these words. Because Jesus said this to the religious leaders and the crowds that were around him. He said, I'm the light of the world. And these people were steeped in the Old Testament. And they would have thought of something as soon as Jesus said this. They would have thought of something immediately, and that would have been Genesis 1. Genesis 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 3 says, And God said, Let there be light. Let there be light. That this work of God in Genesis chapter 1 is God's work of creation, the triune God creating light where there was nothing, speaking into existence that which did not exist, namely light. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit creating light. But if you go to Genesis chapter 1, many of us are familiar with the first verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and we're familiar with Genesis 1 chapter, verse 3, that says, and God said, let there be light, but we forget about verse 2. We forget about verse 2 in the book of Genesis, chapter 1. It's a very important verse. <laughs> I think we miss it oftentimes because we're just so familiar with God creating the heavens and the earth and God saying, let there be light. But if we miss verse 2, I think we miss the importance of what Jesus is saying here. What does verse 2 say? If you wanted to turn with your Bibles there, we could look together. So verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
But it doesn't just go to God saying, let there be light. Moses tells us this in the book of Genesis, that the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Very interesting that the, the scriptures in the book of Genesis, we learn that this act of God in creation is pictured as God speaking light into a world of darkness. God speaking order, illumination into what was before chaos and darkness. And we also see that the Spirit of God is present there. Now, why does God tell us this? Why is this verse 2 included in our Bibles? What does this have to do with John chapter 8? God is telling us something from the very beginning. He's not only telling us that God is creator, God is a God of order, but he is telling us something about redemption and the point and goal of all creation itself. And that when Jesus stands up and proclaims himself to be the one that brings light out of darkness, out of the depths of sin, he is going all the way back to the book of Genesis, to creation itself, and he is saying, I'm the fulfillment of all of this. I am the ultimate goal of all things. What do I mean? Well, we have to sort of do a little bit of hard work here this morning, and I'm sorry about that, okay? I apologize. That this Easter, you know, it's good to come here and just talk about the resurrection. But we have to think a little bit. We have to consider what was going on in the book of Genesis before we can see the glory of what Christ will do in his work of resurrection. So when we come to the creation account, when we come to God creating the heavens and the earth, we have to confess something. We have to believe something. That creation had an ultimate goal from the very beginning. Creation had a goal from the very beginning. Even before the fall into sin, creation itself looked forward to what we call the consummation, the, the final conclusion of God's kingdom. That creation itself, even though it was good, right, it was perfect, it still had a final goal, a final destination. What do I mean? We can see some sort of pictures of this if we look closely at the account with Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve were created good. But we find at the end of the story that they could still sin. What do we see at the end of the book of Revelation? There is no sin. There's no ability to sin. We see man was created good in the image of God, reflecting God's glory, yet man was not glorified, man was not transformed. So there's this sense in which there's a forward looking to creation, even at the beginning of the book of Genesis, that Adam was to do what God commanded. He was to keep the garden and to work the garden. He was to defeat the serpent, right? He was to pass the test of God, not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then he was to enter God's Sabbath glorious rest at the end of all things. That even though man was created good, there was still a higher goal in mind for man, namely eternal life, glory, Sabbath rest in the presence and light of the triune God. That man was to enter that rest and be with God forever glorified. But what happened? We know how the story goes. Genesis 3, because of the first Adam's sin, darkness and curse covered 
the image of God in the earth. That darkness marred the image of God in man. Man was now born into sin, born in darkness, spiritually dead and blind to the light of God's glory and goodness. So there's a big problem, right? God had this great plan for his creation, this great plan for man, and then sin comes in and mars Mars everything. It blinds men to God's goodness. It blinds men to his glory. Is God's plan doomed? Does he need to make a new plan? No. God's plan would not be thwarted. Not only would God come and redeem fallen man from their fall into sin, but he would bring man to the ultimate goal that he had purposed from the very beginning, namely eternal life glorification, and Sabbath rest in God's presence. God would do this. He promised he would do it, and he would do it. But fallen man would need a second Adam, the seed of the woman, this light that would penetrate and cut through the darkness. Man would need someone that could bring them and creation to its consummated final state. The new creation itself, they would need a second Adam. And so the rest of the Old Testament from Genesis 3 onward looks forward to this one that would bring light and salvation. The whole Old Testament is pointing forward to this one that would bring light and salvation to God's people, that would lead them out of darkness, out of sin, out of death, and into the Sabbath rest that God had promised. Hopefully I haven't lost you yet, okay? You're still with me? My dad's smoking ribs at home, and it's hard not to think about that, okay? And I know everybody's got a big meal plan, but stay with me, okay? So this, this light and darkness contrast is throughout the whole Old Testament, okay? Right? And where do we see this appear in other places? We see this in the book of Exodus, that God leads his people out of Israel. How does he lead them out of Israel? with a flaming pillar of fire and light. He leads them so that they can move through the darkness, to through the wilderness, to the promised land. God brings light where there was only darkness in this pillar of fire and light. And the prophets in the Old Testament pick up on this language of light and darkness, salvation through the darkness. And specifically, the prophet Isaiah does this. But it's very interesting. He doesn't just apply this promise of salvation, of light, to the people of Israel. He applies it to the world. He applies it to the nations. He looks forward to this one, Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49, look forward to this servant, this one that's going to come from God, this one that's going to be sent by the Lord, that's not only going to be a light, this salvation to Israel, but a light to the nations. Isaiah 49, 6 says this. This is God speaking. I will make you, talking to the servant, I will make you a light to the nations that my salvation might reach to the ends of the earth. Interesting. This one is going to be made a light to the nations. What did Jesus say? I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. So when Jesus stands up and proclaims, I am the light of the world, he's not proclaiming this in a vacuum. He is saying, I am the one that will come and bring light and salvation to God's people. But not just to the Jews, 
to the Gentiles, to the world, to the nations. I am the son of righteousness, the very glory and presence of God, leading his people like the pillar of fire through the wilderness to the heavenly promised land. And he's really saying, I am the second and last Adam, the one that's going to bring fallen man through the darkness, through the curse of sin, the depths of our curse, to the light of the new creation, the eternal life that God promised all the way back in the beginning. That's me. I'm going to do that. So this is all packed into what Jesus says here in John chapter 8. I am the light of the world. I am the one that's going to bring salvation to God's people. So what is the people's reaction to this light? How do the people in John's gospel respond to this glorious, majestic light that's come to bring salvation? How do we respond to the light? We hate it. We want to extinguish it. We want to destroy it. We want to stamp it out. What are the, what are the Pharisees saying in the next verse? Your testimony is not true. They're basically saying you're a liar. These same Pharisees are the ones that are going to take Jesus, throw up a mock court, beat him, whip him, throw him up on a Roman cross, and crucify him. They want to extinguish the light. They want to stamp out the light. They hate the light. Why? What do we read this morning in John? Because it exposes their wickedness. It exposes the depths of their hearts. Their, their sin is being exposed. Their evil deeds are being brought to the light, and they don't like it. And so they're, they're stamping the light out. They think that if, if we kill this man, we can kill the light, and we can remain in our darkness. They spit on the light, they mock the light, and they think that they can extinguish the light. And so as we come to try to make this connection with what Christ did in his life and his death and his resurrection, what do we sing this morning? Light of the world by darkness slain. That Christ really did die. It seemed as if the light was extinguished. Those three days in the tomb it seemed as if the light had gone out, that darkness had won, that God's plan had been thwarted, that man was lost in their sin, and that there was no hope for humanity. But while Christ's death appeared to be the extinguishing of the light, in fact, it was the triumphing of the light over the darkness that death and darkness could not conquer this light. <laughs> it could not cover the light. When you put a candle in a dark room, darkness can't defeat the candle. <laughs> the light wins. And so in the resurrection of Christ, death and darkness have been defeated. What Adam failed to do, what Israel failed to do, Christ did not. This is this is the gospel. This is Easter. This is the connection between the light of the world and the resurrection of Christ. When Christ was raised from the dead, he brought resurrection life. He brought light out of darkness. He brought the new covenant, the new creation. And on that Sunday, Christ rose on a Sunday. On that glorious Sunday, Jesus is standing as the resurrected one who has purchased eternal life for God's people Sabbath rest for them, and glory at the right hand of the Father. He earned what we could not. He did what the first Adam failed to do. He is the first fruits 
of our glorious resurrection. And as we read this morning, he has brought us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his son, the light of the world. And so in John chapter 8, verse 12, when Jesus proclaims to be the light of the world, he is saying, this is what I'm going to do, right? The crucifixion hasn't happened yet. The resurrection hasn't happened yet in John chapter 8. He's saying, this is what I'm going to do. I am the light of the world. All who walk in darkness, come to me. Come to me. Find forgiveness of your sins. Find resurrection life. Find hope. Full pardon and complete forgiveness of all your sins. Don't walk in the darkness anymore. Come to the light. I am the light. Follow me. And so as we as we come to the end of this verse, and as we try to think about what does this verse have to do with us, how do we apply this passage to our own lives here now, indicator, 2,000 years after the resurrection of Christ? Because what makes this passage so glorious, what makes these truths, the whole story of the Bible, what makes it so glorious is that this new creation life, this light of the gospel, has begun in our very hearts. It's begun in our very hearts. This work of resurrection light, new creation has begun in our very souls. And this is the promise of what Jesus says at the end of this passage. He says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That those that are in Christ by faith no longer walk in the darkness. This is a, a promise of Christ. He's saying, if you come to me, if you follow me, you will not be in the darkness, but you will have the light of light. And so the question we have to ask ourselves this morning, if we're being really honest, is how does this happen? How does this happen? How does someone go from loving the darkness to loving the light? How does someone go from hating the light, as we read in John chapter 3? How does someone go from hating the light to walking and loving the light? Is it something in them? Is it some power that they themselves possess? No. The only way this is possible is the resurrecting power of God in our hearts. That just as in the first creation, where there was only darkness and chaos, just as in the first creation where there was only deep waters, so in our hearts there's deep waters of sin and unbelief and darkness. But what God has done in Christ is spoken light where there was only darkness and sin. Illumination and new creation by the Spirit. And this is what we read this morning in our confession of our assurance of pardon. What does Paul say there in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6? For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What's Paul saying there? This is very important. In the same way that God spoke into existence, that which did not exist, namely light, in the first creation, in the same way God has spoken into existence the light of the gospel in our very hearts, in this act of new creation. This is what we call the new birth. 
resurrection of our souls. And this is grounded, as we read this morning, in the resurrection of Christ. This is the only reason we have hope of resurrection is because what God has done through Christ, the light of the world that could not be slain, but would ultimately pierce through the darkness in resurrection life. And by his spirit, he's begun that resurrection life in our souls, in the new birth. And that all that come to him might not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. That this is the promise for God's people, that even though we will still sin, we will still struggle with the darkness. We have the Spirit of God dwelling within us. We have the promise of our bodily resurrection. And so we get this amazing picture in the book of Revelation, chapter 21. We see a picture of the end, that we have hope that is outside of this world. We see a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. And it's very interesting what it says. In verse 23, it says that there is no need of sun, nor of the moon. Why? There's no sun, there's no moon. There's no evening, there's no night in the new creation. Why? For the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. I am the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. He is the Lamb that was slain. And he, at the end of all things, will be the one that shines his glorious light. There will be no need of sun, no need of moon, because the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb of God, Jesus himself. That's our hope this morning. That's what we look to by faith. This is all because of Christ. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ coming as the light of the world to pierce through our darkness. We could not save ourselves. We couldn't earn salvation. We could not earn eternal Sabbath rest. And yet in the person and work of Christ, you've done everything that we could not. Living the perfect life dying the death on the cross that we deserve, and being resurrected to new life. And so as we come to you on this Sunday, the day of resurrection, the day of resurrection, that from the resurrection on, God's people come to gather together on the first day of the week as we remember what God has done in Christ. And we do that so that we can look forward to that eternal day the Sabbath rest that God has given his people in the new heavens and the new earth, where we too will be raised in new creation life. And we, we know that this work has begun in our very hearts by the Spirit. And so this morning, Lord, as we struggle with our sin, as we struggle with our flesh, disease, corruption, suffering, temptation, we can know this morning that you have given us your spirit as a seal and a guarantee that not only will you forgive us of our sins, not only will you pardon our iniquity, but you will bring us to glory because for all those that are found in the second Adam, in the last Adam, as we read this morning, he has become a life-giving spirit. We have hope this morning that just as we bore the image of the man of dust, so we too will bear the image of the man of heaven. We have hope this morning, and we pray that you would help us to see the glory of the gospel 
as we look to Christ by faith. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.